Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. originally envisaged this event I thought we'd do it during the World Cup we have a massive screen behind us with a live game muted obviously and that you would all come with your various kits and I'm sort of looking across and you're all looking rather sober unless you're going to peel off your shirts and reveal an array of Real Madrid shirts to torment poor Simon yeah. who's a Liverpool fan no, but um, yeah. if you do do that I'll let you ask the first question um, but let me introduce the event and our speakers so this is an event about football and philosophy I hope that's what you're expecting some people think that, philo- that football is a matter of life and death began the legendary Liverpool manager Bill Shankly I'm very disappointed with that attitude I can assure you it's much more important than that he said so let's find out if that's true in this event we ask if the beautiful game is also a philosophical one Uh, We'll be tackling the ethics of competition and the aesthetics of sport. What makes for a good game? And can philosophical principles be put into practice in play? I'm going to ask some questions. Um, I'm going to encourage our our, our panellists to speak to each other. And we'll hand over to you as soon as possible. So there'll be lots of time for you to ask questions too. Now our speakers are Dr Gerald Moore. Gerald is in the middle there. Maybe they hate me because I'm too good, said Cristiano Ronaldo, but it could just as well have been said of Gerald Moore. He's Associate Professor in the School of Languages and Culture at Durham, at Durham University. Please don't call me arrogant, but I think I'm the special one, said Jose Mourinho, but maybe he was talking about Dr. Emily Ryle. She's a reader in the philosophy of sports at the University of Gloucestershire, and Professor Simon Critchley. I wouldn't say he was the best philosopher in the business, but I would say he was in the top one, to paraphrase Brian Clough. Simon is handy and is Professor of Philosophy at the New School for social research at New York. Now, Simon, you're going to start us off. And my, my first question is, um, in your book, what we think about when we think of football, mm. this is an extended promotion for your, for your book, um, <laughs> you say in that book, if we are to study football philosophically, it's not so much that we should formulate axioms from football, but that we could develop a poetics of football. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, so it's not... I mean, the idea that you know, philosophy's up here and football's down there and that we can abstract certain principles from football and then on the basis of those ideas analyse different phenomena, that's, that's not what interests me. What interests me is the, um, is, uh, is the game. The game, play, and uh, what goes on when we play and when we watch play and trying to get as close to that experience of play as possible, to the grain and texture of that experience. And um, so in the, in the walk... <coughs> it's very nice to be back at the forum. <laughs> I, was, I was here at the beginning, a long time ago, with Catalina Dal and Alan Montefiore, and it's fantastic it still exists. I'm very pleased. Anyway, so but I digress. William James... Uh, William James is a kind of vastly underread thinker in a country like this, apart from by people like 
Wittgenstein. And um, James's approach, just how you get close to experience, right? getting close to the ex- experience of anything. And, uh, and the experience of the game is what interests me. And then to try and tease out descriptively certain, certain patterns. So poetics in the way in which our friend Aristotle talks about poetics. And the good thing about, say, Aristotle's idea of poetics is that poetics is, he has certain formal ideas about tragedy, epic, and less so on, on comedy, but they're based on uh, numerous specimens, numerous examples. Aristotle was a kind of a naturalist, right? And so it's important to approach football in that spirit and not to look at it from some lofty, philosophical, detached point of view, but try and immerse yourself in this, this phenomenon and to try and bring out the, both the, uh, the stupidity of, of, of football, which I think is important, to give yourself over to something which is evidently stupid, but which I spend an awful lot of my time. Is that just supporting Liverpool, or do you mean? Well, that, that's pain, that's pain, yeah. I just got back from Madrid this morning, I spent the last three days in Madrid, but sheer, I mean, the gods, the gods conspired. So I was back to see the game with my son here, and then went to Madrid and, you know, to suffer these Real Madrid fans for, for days, it was horrible. Because <laughs> they, yeah, you're getting beat, yeah, anyway, we could talk about that, but, but that, yeah, anyway, so that, and what else are going to say? Um, and to try and attend to, to the detail of the game. Oh, stupidity, yeah. And the intelligence of the game. That, in a sense, for me, everything that I want to be true philosophically is true of football. And probably only true of football. And the extraordinary thing about football is that you can have these deeply held passions and connections to teams. In my case, Liverpool Football Club. And there is an extraordinary use of reasoning and rationality, which people who don't understand football have got little sense of. So what you find with, when you're talking to other fans or people interested in the game is an extraordinary back and forth where people are persuaded. You can change your mind. What never happens in philosophy, like I've never been to a philosophy talk ever where at the end of the philosophy talk someone says, that was really good, I've completely changed my mind. Uh, but what you, what you said, and I'll now think, I, I agree with you. It never happens. People always stick to their convictions. There's something about football, uh, and I, I think football is a, it's a sport, but a funny kind of sport, maybe not even a sport in a way, which allows for this stupidity of passion and belief and conviction and a kind of operation of intelligence, which is open to all sorts of elements of persuasion and it's also something which is very there's tremendous equality in football that you know the people here have got opinions I've got opinions our opinions have the same merit you know you can talk have a good football conversation with a an eight year old kid or with an 80 year old person there's something very egalitarian about football discussion which I like a lot so that's yeah there is um, something Irrational too about mm-hmm. football too, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting to position it as a space of 
the kind of exemplification of a certain kind of reason, and a reason that you, you don't see happening in philosophical discourse, but happening in a football match. But it's also the space of kind of fate and destiny or ideas of superstition, right? Yeah. Um, who's the footballer who kisses somebody's head, the goalie's head before? Oh, it was uh, <laughs> Fabian Barthez. Fabian Barthez. Laurent Blanc. Yeah, Blanc. yeah so it's a, a space also of absolute irrationality too, no? Mm-hmm. And they're both things at the same time. And uh, an irrationality and also superstition. It's a very superstitious game. You know, we've all got our rituals connected with the game. With me, it's, you know, our certain rituals around watching a Liverpool game. And I believe that my me watching the game is important to the outcome of the game. Um, you know, the, the Real Madrid-Liverpool game the other week, it, you know, from the moment that Sergio Ramos physically assaulted Mohamed Salah... <laughs> And he should be in life imprisonment, in jail, in Catalonia, preferably. And he repeat, you knew fate was in the air. You knew what was going to happen. And there's that awful, awful feeling of you, you just know what's going to happen. And uh, it's like watching English, watching the English national, national team. That's a peculiarly painful experience of fate. But it's fate. And then you get this... What's even worse is you can feel it happening in these days, right now, the delusion of hope, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so even now, we know, you know, I've, been, I've watched World Cup since 1966, um, and England won the World Cup in 1966, which is a long time ago, and since then it's been a record of disaster and despair. But still, and you know... You know it's going to end badly, but still there's this hope that tickles and flickers. That's so. The worst thing about football isn't the disappointment, losing. That's that's important. There's this hope that tickles your feet. Do you and, uh, do you have any sense of why? I I when I pitched this, I had uh, nothing reasonable, just an intuition that football was the sport that philosophers most revered. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's tennis, maybe it's wrestling, but it seems to me that a pretty natural number of philosophers have had interest in football. Am I right in saying that? And I don't know. I, I, we could talk, I mean, AJ Ayer, Freddie Ayer was a Spurs fan, <laughs> uh, but, and Austin made little jokes about, about Ayer's, you know, but I think no, because of, for class reasons, actually. Right. I went to a grammar school in 1971. I, was, I wasn't a bad footballer. But back in those benighted days, um, you weren't allowed to play football at grammar school because it wasn't a gentleman's game. You played yeah. rugby and cricket. So the class dimension to that, I think it's also... I think there's a, there's a lot of... There's some philosophers interested in football, but there's a, there's a lot that aren't. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are very ignorant of the game. Yeah, well, I'm not afraid to read your book, obviously. One last question for you. Um, you so you were talking earlier about... Um, a kind of Aristotelian sense of the game as a kind of specimen. Yeah. W- what's exceptional about football? What makes it the exceptional specimen? Do you think? Um, it's collective nature. I think it's um, it's it's collaborative qualities. It's unlike golf or tennis for that reason. It's not an individualistic sport. You, if you have good individuals, that's very good. But it's a team sport. <laughs> And it's the fans, right? And the fans as the, um, the kind of living archive of the memory of teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see football as a kind of uh, polytheism. 
right? in the sense in which you, these fans who will follow the rituals, know the history, uh, players come and go, managers come and go, but the fans are often there, for, they've got generations and generations of history, and those, that culture is linked in this country and elsewhere to specific social organisations, clubs, <coughs> pubs, whatever, and that's, um, that's, you know, that's true of other sports, but in football it's true in a, in a really deep way. And the, the thing is, so one, one claim I, I make, I mean, it's an absurd claim, picking up on Shankly, mm -hmm. is that the form of football for me is socialism, mm -hmm. right? I use Clough and Shankly as examples of that, and there are others, Paul Breitner and uh, other, and Socrates, the Brazilian Socrates, um, the, the chain-smoking chain doctor who died recently, not long ago. Uh, but, there's, but, the, but the content of football is money. It's money, and we know that. And so one question you often get is whether football is being destroyed by money. Football has always had this complex relationship to, to money. You need money to buy players, you know, and that money comes from certain resources. You've got a Juve fan, Juventus are a consequence of the Agnelli family, uh, industrialization in Turin and that whole history. And so it's dirty and the money is much dirtier now, more questionable, but still, if you look at a team, say like Manchester City, is a good example, where all that money's come in, it's bought that, those players, it's brought Guardiola in and it's produced this extraordinary thing which is Manchester City's football team and it's there's ugly money there but it's it's still possible as a fan to not reconcile I don't think you can feel good about football this is very important I don't think football is the beautiful sport we go oh it's great football is uh, it's it's beautiful and it's it's an ugly game because of the operations of money and the rest it's kind of always been like that and it's getting worse and, uh, and the fact that the, you know, the governing organisation of the game, FIFA, is a completely corrupt body that needs to be root and branch replaced, right? Um, taken out of Switzerland for, for a start. <laughs> and it's and so you know so it, it's the still there's all of that corruption. Yet still uh, something can happen in a game which will surprise, delight, and engage us. But football fans are not stupid. They're not unaware of the money and the corruption and all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. They know about that, and still they love the game. Mm -hmm. So let's think about the, you know, the, 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 the combination of delight and disgust, I think, is what defines the experience of being a football fan. I've got questions for Geraldine and Andy, but I wanted to give you both an opportunity to pick up on anything that Simon had just said. Does, does that resonate for you? Well, I, I was going to actually ask Simon. So you work in a, a, a North American university. I do. Is there anything that you said that one of you, you know, your American colleagues wouldn't say about American football or baseball or American oh, right. sport? Is there is there something particular to football itself? The collaborative quality, right? Uh, which isn't true, say, of, uh, of baseball. Um, <clears throat> The, um, but the passion is obviously shared. The fans, and, you know, they would they would say there's something you know so rich about yeah. those sports. There are similarities, obviously, and in baseball there are deep cultural factors like the fact you know, the Boston Red Sox and teams like that, or the New York Mets, who are still a new team, early '60s. But the 
but the um, so there are similarities, but there are differences. The differences in the, 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 the if you like, the, the cultural depth and the fact that the way people talk in North American sports about the franchise, right? and the fact that the the Brooklyn Dodgers in Emmett's Field in Brooklyn became the LA Dodgers. I mean, that happened in the case of who was it, Wimbledon? Wimbledon, yeah. But you know, it was a kind of disaster. It, you know, so you imagine that Manchester United become whatever, Durham or whatever, Gloucester. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that. So there's something about that which I think is different, and uh, I think other things, especially things like songs. If you've been to a baseball game or a football, American football game, the singing is useless. <laughs> Whereas for me, what a lot of football is about is about the complexity of the, of the songs. In fact, the songs are long, they're specific, they change game by game, and um, you need to learn them, and there's a beauty to that, I think. There's a complexity to that. So it's similar, sure, to other team sports, but better. <laughs> better, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, I don't think there needs to be anything really different. I don't think we need to go as far as saying that football necessarily does anything that cricket or hockey don't do in the same way that one wouldn't feel uh, compelled to say that John Updike is better or worse than any other Anglophone novel. They are different ways of grammatising the same kind of relationship and I'll elaborate what I mean by that in in due course. Um, And I guess that we don't. What matters here is the singularity of the experience that comes out of it, not necessarily the distinctiveness of the thing in relation to which we have that experience. Yeah, nicely put, I think. Let's let's move to you because I want to know now about um, precisely what you were sort of insinuating there. Um, people talk about football as a universal language, don't they? You see that. It, during Comic Relief when David Beckham goes out to uh, a third world country and he gets the football out and then all of a sudden they're all playing. Mm-hmm. So we have this idea that it's a universal language and that can be sometimes quite a almost sentimental notion. Mm-hmm. Um, and often in teams, of course, um, players don't have a language in common other than football. Yeah. And that, as Simon was stressing, has often to do with money in our major teams. Um, but that's what I want to ask you about, Gerald. Has football become a spectacle of capitalism as opposed to the socialist history that Simon was gesturing towards in the <coughs> 70s? So I'll pick up first on the language point and I'd start by saying I'm not a linguistic exceptionalist. I don't think that language is the thing that defines us as human. Um, I think that what defines us as human is a relationship with technology, technical objects, the tool. It is through uh, using tools to build both the world that we also build ourselves. You know, this expression that, uh, that world building is also self-engineering. And I think that this is more primordial than language. And, and this is really what football, we can see it as being about. Um, the footballer is the archetypal example of somebody who invents themselves a world, a future, an experience of desire in relation to that technical object that is the football. And we can see so much else that becomes distinctive about human life, if we want to to put it in those terms, that comes from this relationship with the object. Desire is not a biological thing. Desire is, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting the philosopher Bernard Stiegler when I say this, 
desire is purely artificial. It's not born of biological drives. It comes from creating ourselves a future and then projecting ourselves into it. And this is something that we see happen all the time with footballers. One wakes up, you know, Lionel Messi is someone who is a football addict in absolutely the correct neurological sense of the world. That old distinction has broken down now. Messi wakes up in the morning, thinks about nothing but football, can't even think of paying his taxes, he's so... (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he creates himself a future, he creates desire, projects... And this happens to little boys and girls all over the world. You dream of scoring the winning goal at Wembley or at the Dele Alpi or wherever it would be. And so this for me is more primordial than a linguistic relationship. It is a fundamentally a relationship to the technical object in the world, the self that we create through that relationship. And what becomes really interesting about this is that like all good art, the footballer as artist recreates the grammar of football, recreates a new language of expression. I think a brilliant example of this, which really saddens me that people in the UK have not seen it properly, you take somebody like Paul Pogba, I have never seen a footballer move their body around the ball and get the ball to do more work than they do themselves than Paul Pogba does. It's, it's astonishing. And if you want to draw uh, you know, a, a series of crimes against art where at one end of the scale you'd have Palmyra's destruction by ISIS, somewhere there will be Ai Weiwei being held captive by the Chinese government. The Philistine, Bulgarian Jose Mourinho's treatment of Paul Pogba would be absolutely at the bottom end of the scale, admittedly. But this, but this restriction of the way that that st- Deleuze would call it a style, you know, the ability to reinvent the language of expression becomes so much about what football's about and the creation of the desire that goes with that. Now, I think where we've shifted to um, more recently in terms of capitalism and the commercialisation of football. So if we go back to this basic idea that it's a relationship to the tool, well, we've moved away from uh, some kind of balance between producing and consuming. What we're really in now is a consumerist world where we have consumption without production, where people uh, sit and watch the spectacle of, of football without playing it, without participating in it. Um, And I guess where this becomes an issue for me is that we tend to think of something like desire as an infinite resource. It's not. It it wanes, it depletes, and when it gets depleted, what do we get? Depression, immiseration. And what we're seeing now, I think, is really a real disenchantment with football. Um, I'm trying to write a little book at the moment on the idea that capitalism is and always has been but is increasingly more so the history of the manufacture of addictions it works right back to the dawn of uh, the spice roots and through smoking and alcohol except, uh, but, but I really think you can make the claim nowadays that contemporary capitalism is about dopamining it is about the exploitation of manufactured addictions and what you see with contemporary football is that we consume beyond the point of pleasure. Mm. We consume out of compulsion. You see it at the level of footballers, people like David Bentley who are retiring because they're just so sick and miserable at the game. You see it with so many people who don't really care about it anymore. And this, this is not a healthy... But how, uh, what do you mean? That they play too much football or we watch too much football? I think we, we are constantly bombarded with it. Um, and... 
assumed that we have this infinite capacity to consume it, and, and we don't. Um, and partly this manifests itself in the absurd, inflated commentary that you get on Sky and BT, where every game has to be incredible and an adrenaline rush. And, you know that most people are just sitting there depressed and miserable, which, wishing they had something better to do uh, with their lives. Um, I think the footballers too, you know, a lot of them will talk about the love of the game is gone, this has become drudge work, exploitation, the, the, the assumption is, well, they're being paid loads of money, so it's fine. But it, it's not fine. If you lose that sense of participating in something to the point where you can create some relationship of desire into which you want to project yourself um, then things really start to take a, a pretty nasty turn and what we have here and I think it becomes a model of, con- of contemporary economics as a whole is just this continual exploitation of, of what's left of desire to the point of exhaustion and what follows from that is very joyless consumption and I think that's basically where we are, where we are with football at the moment Great. That's a positive note. It's really fascinating, this idea of a kind of economics of, and the exploitation, this idea of an exploitative football. But it, it, to my mind, that only works if we're thinking about professional football, right? That we're saturated and that there's too much of it and um, the players are overworked and all that. But in a different context, if we think about amateur football, if we think about the kids who are kicking a football round in their garden tonight or out every night or every weekend. My brothers were like this constantly. I was like this as a child. There is, in that circumstance, quantity has a different effect, right? But football is a democratic game. All you need is a ball. You don't need a tennis racket. You don't need a golf club. It's a democratic game. But we're not seeing much of that anymore. And it manifests itself in all kinds of funny little figures. We imagine that places like China and South Korea are the absolute future of the global game. Well, 98% of young men in South Korea and China have got short eyesight. Why? The basic reason for that is because they don't spend enough time outside. You need to spend about three hours a day outside in order to get the depth of vision that is required to have normal functioning eyesight. And the people who are part of the growth of the game aren't playing it. They're sitting there consuming it passively on screens and and through FIFA. I'm not wholly against things like um, the... uh, watching the game, playing it on computers. You know, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by the way that when I was young, um, we, I grew up in the 80s, very much long ball, bashed around. I quit playing at the age of six because I got put in with the group of two and three-year-olds because I was so much smaller than everybody else. Didn't watch it again until the 1990 World Cup. Um, and yet nowadays you see that we have a generation of the very few people who do play. They both play with the ball and play something like FIFA on the PlayStation, they play so much more intelligently than we ever did um, when we were at school because they have a very distinct way of looking through through the computer game, thinking about the through balls and the possibilities of technical play that gets opened up by that. So we still get new and interesting possibilities of reinvention coming out of that, but really, you know, you mentioned the, the amateur side of the game. The amateur side of the game is on its knees. Um, you know, you get occasional little initiatives like Ebbsfleet Town, which I think is now falling into the that was a, a big fan-led project for reconstruction. We endlessly tout the virtues of the Bundesliga with its 51% fan ownership rule, 
But these are all the exceptions that, that, that prove the rule that the amateur game is, is on its knees. That sounds like a real creed of care. We'll find out from the audience if they agree. One last question for me. I'm really intrigued by this idea of this kind of formulation of the game as um, uh, a, a football as a prosthetic or a kind of tech, the technological analysis of the game. Mm-hmm. But it seems in that, in your, um, the scenario where Mourinho is torturing and exploiting <coughs> poor, poor Pogba, there's also in the game other subjects like a manager are also part of the technology too. One of the things that must happen in any game is that you learn to deal with the autonomy of other subjects mm. and oppressive Mourinho who says this is not how you can play and you have to and that's life too right that's a life lesson the technology of other people well yes and no there are uh, I don't want to make you defend Mourinho if you don't want to well yeah, I mean, there, are, there are multiple ways of playing the game and that, you know, there are multiple yeah. grammars that get invented from this there are some teams that will play very dialectically where the individual gets sublated within the team but for every Burnley that you've got that is a, a working example of that, you've got a dozen Real Madrids where dialectically they're hopeless, they are totally reliant on various individuals to keep them going um, so it's I mean, yes to some extent one can understand the, the Mourinho approach that says well we'll, we'll bash all these parts to, to, to fit what I want but there is also uh, one has to know what one is working with and what to do with it and if you have somebody who is so fundamentally philistinic and uncreative that they can't see the tools in front of them and work out how to meld them into a semi-beautiful thing um, then we're really not seeing the, the game at its finest there Okay, um, any Simon and Emily don't see is there anything you wanted to pick up on there? I think, I mean, I, I, I mean I don't like Mourinho, um, but he can be defended. There's a kind of I remember reading papers as two Irish scholars that I've read a few things by uh, work on football, and uh, they accused me of uh, romanticism right? around Klopp and Liverpool, and, and what they saw in Mourinho was a kind of cold Adornian modernism. Right? And I think there's something to that. There's something to you've got. There's football, Guardiola, and then there's you know, the Klopp version. Then you've got the Mourinho version of anti-football. And it doesn't matter. Who cares? If the Pogba fits into that structure or he doesn't. Alexis Sanchez, same thing. So there's a kind of uh, there's a coldness to Mourinho, which is kind of interesting. And uh, so I, he, I wouldn't defend it, but he could be defended. If he, I, I liked him in fairness to him I liked him until relatively recently uh, it's the Pogba thing that's really turned me um, he was different in Porto different in the early years of Chelsea I think where this becomes quite interesting is because we start to get into debates about players rights and the assumption that just because they're paid billions that one can do anything with them and, but they don't have the right to resign and walk away and go somewhere else in the way that the rest of us would if they didn't like the way that their manager behaves um, and I think we also start to get onto some really interesting questions about politics in relation to football too, because we, we have the socialist kind of utopian models of football, mm-hmm. um, which we'd link to the Guardiolas and the Klops and the Shankies, but then we also have 
deeply, deeply, not just conservative, but far-right traditions. In, mm-hmm. you know, Fabio Capello is openly Liga Norda in Italy. He is an open uh, political extremist. And I think Mourinho... Who's the West, the West Ham player, the guy who went back to Lazio, what was his name? Oh, Paolo Di Cagno. Isaac why did you give a fascist salute? I'm a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's very hard not to see someone like yeah. Mourinho on, on those lines of things. And so I think we, we do start to move into political questions. The assumption that, yeah. uh, that, that one can just bully the worker into doing one's bidding. And this comes into questions as well about the ethics of transgression. I feel I guess we'll come to them in due course, so I won't preempt them. Well, let me ask you um, the question I've, I've got for you, um, because uh, I do want us to talk about, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but I've tried to dress as a referee today, um, and I do want to talk about the place of the referee. They don't wear match. black anymore, yeah. they wear yellow and... Well, you know, um, we're going to get to the referee and the mm-hmm. referee's dress code in a moment, but um, what I want to ask you, Emily, is really, it's a simple question, but I think it's a really complicated answer, so that's why I'm saying this question for you. Um, is the beautiful game still beautiful, or has it become a brutal game? I, I think it is probably more beautiful now than it ever has been in the past. Now, a lot of that's to do with technology, the lights of balls, mm-hmm. um, the professionalisation of it. Um, and the, the changes in the rules whereby there's so much um, uh, concern over player welfare that you know you can't kind of you know the, the, the kind of the old hard men of football Chopper Harris that you just kind of went in as, as hard as you could um, there's been a real attempt to to try and stamp that kind of thing out so I, I would say that actually the ideal of football has a potential of being more beautiful now than it ever has been yeah. um, so it, it, is, it can be a brutal game, but I think for different reasons than, than it was previously. And your, uh, we've, we've, Gerald has touched on um, these kind of molish school children in their bedrooms playing FIFA, uh, playing esports, but you're someone who's researched esports and you take that quite seriously, right? So, well, I, I mean, I'm astounded, I don't know with you, I'm, I'm astounded at the amount of people that will watch virtual football games, which is actually, there's some evidence that suggests that it's, it's growing in number, and it's, it's and certainly for a particular age group, it's more people for the younger age group will watch virtual football games and big competitions and tournaments than will watch kind of the real thing. What do we mean by virtual football games? Well, okay. you know, on the PlayStation or Xbox. So I think um, in the last week there's been uh, a couple of the, kind of the eSports e- World Cup whereby teams have, you know, they've played it on the PlayStation and the Xbox, um, played against each other uh, for the championship. And uh, the, the, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people have been watching this. And it's, it's, I, I find it quite absurd, but there's obviously a huge demand for it, and I've been thinking about it, and, and I'm wondering whether actually there's, there's more potential for beauty and, and, to a certain extent, creativity in uh, esports than there is um, in, in the real game. Um, now, one of those reasons could be for the fact that um, because the person with the controller has got a very, very different perspective, so they can see the whole pitch rather than just that, you know, you just want one person um, on a pitch trying to control your body in a particular way. So they've got a, a bird's eye view of what's happening on the pitch. 
um, so they can see where the players go. And obviously there's a lot of artificial intelligence in terms of the, the computing power moving players around, but they can st start to see the potentialities about where players are, how to pass the, uh, the ball, which player to, to pass to, what kind of pass, which I, I guess gives it more control in, in that sense. Um, there's also much less scope for, I, I think, cheating and gamesmanship. Yeah. Um, because you, you know, you can't pretend to foul somebody, or uh, you can't pretend to be fouled if you're playing it virtually. Mm -hmm. So you don't get this kind of gamesmanship. And one of the things that really does bug bug me about kind of football is the the gamesmanship, of, you know, that, that happens within it. So I'm wondering whether that might be a reason for the attractiveness of esports, and particularly kind of um, uh, like. FIFA on the PlayStation or, or Xbox, um, because of the, diff the different perspective that players get, the different potentialities in terms of what they're able to do, but also the fact that it's much more fluid and flowing. And you know, one of the, the um, one of the reasons that FIFA are often very conservative in their um, use of technology is because they say, well, we don't want it to affect the flow of the game. You know, the whole one of the attractive attractive things about football is the idea that it, it does have this tempo, this flow to it, mm -hmm. um, and the ideal of it is that, in theory, a game could go for two 45-minute stints without there being any stoppage or breakage of play. Um, and that may be one of the reasons why football is better than kind of the US and American football. It's because it's harder to commercialise in the US. Yeah, because you've got this, 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 this flow. Yeah. Um, and perhaps eSports allow for that flow that the real game, with its commercialism, gamesmanship, all of the rest of it, don't have, have kind of it, it's it's been it's broken down. I think mm -hmm. to a certain extent. I can see how eliminating fouling and that awful gamesmanship might be very satisfying, but it, it also seems to me a really purist mm. vision of football. And we've already started talking about the history of football and its violence and its politics. We haven't started talk about empire a great deal we could talk about the claims to football too and so maybe there's a is there a, a kind of ethical problem in that vision of these sports as far as it strips it of that real history yeah I think it is a very kind of anemic version now personally I would say I'm a purist rather than a partisan I've got no, I, I don't support any particular football team. I wouldn't even say I'm that patriotic when it comes to England playing. Um, I, I personally enjoy the kind of the beauty of football for its aesthetic reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate what it is to be a partisan because you get something very, very different out of the game. The fact that you feel you've got an interest and a stake in it, and it does really, really, really matter who wins. Um, but uh, for me, that's not kind of why I'm interested in football. I've got, I've got much more kind of purist tendencies in that in that regard. Um, so I, I think, yes, there is some real history, culture, ritual, all the rest of it that, that, that Simon was talking about that is really important to do with um, football. And I think that, yeah, my, my idea that perhaps esports might take off because of the purist aesthetic elements... I think I think you're absolutely right that there is something kind of anemic about that. It's, mm. it's, it's missing the richness of mm. the game. I like the, the physical metaphors of that. It's an anemic. Mm. Uh, you're nodding vigorously, Simon, as we've been talking about you sport. Are you a FIFA? <coughs> no, but I think it's. I think you know philosophically, 
you know, we're in the domain of fantasy when it comes to football. Fantasy in the, in the thick, proper, with a PH fantasy sense, uh, uh, where real and unreal mix and blur. Football is, watching live football is virtual, mm. right? And the watch, particularly when you watch games in the evening, and you're in a stadium, Emirates or wherever it might be, and, you, what you, and you're watching, you're there, actually there, but what you're watching resembles a virtual mediation. So football is a um, football is play presenting itself. It's not explained through the thoughts of the players. It's not explained through data. It's what presents itself, and it presents itself in the form of total mediation, complete, completely Hegelian thesis in that sense that there is something about that you could say there's a kind of if, if you like if you want to go there wouldn't be yeah but, but well, we, I mean we could go Hegel I kind of want to go Heidegger a little bit because um, brace yourselves but you, this is a time to go for your half time oranges if you're not interested right in slip off but, um, slip off for a half time break <laughs> because Emily was talking about flow and yeah. you were talking about fantasy and when I think about football I have a very strange relationship to time when I yep. watch football, right? So, yep. I mean, that's partly to do with replays or um, the kinds of ways in which our experience at a match is as fractured between looking at the game and then looking at, you know, your friend or going for a burger or whatever it is, right? You have a strange experience of time and in really intense games, you know, the last few seconds can feel like years mm -hmm. and time telescopes, mm -hmm. time sometimes comes at you too fast mm -hmm. and kids often say, don't they? You know, I'm late home for dinner because I lost track of time. I'm yeah. playing with my mates. Yeah. So there seems to be something very peculiar temporally. Yeah, it's a point. I mean, you know, Bergson, Heidegger. You know, <laughs> in the last hundred odd years, philosophers have been trying to make a point about that the time of the clock is not the fundamental lived experience of time. The lived experience of time is something which accelerates, decelerates. It can be. Have a, have a duration, it can speed up, it can slow down. That we see that temporality in football, you see it happen. You see time compress, expand, and you see time compress and expand spatially. It's absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, one thing I, you know, interests me just because the fact that Jurgen Klopp was, you know, was born and brought up not far from where Heidegger was born. Okay. So, on the basis of that, that happenstance when Klopp talks about the moment, the moment, <laughs> and he uses that word over and over again, I try and understand that in terms of what Heidegger says about ecstatic temporality. And ecstatic, ecstatic temporality is when you rise out, out of the inauthentic drift of time into a, a moment. Right? And football, it, you can see that. You can see, you can see time like that at a certain, a certain point. And then, so, you know, the, a lot of the a lot of the points that philosophers from the traditions that interest me most were trying to make are perfectly evident when you watch a football game. Mm. Just kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Stieglerian point here too. Stiegler would begin by saying that actually all time is related to the experience of technology. The past comes into existence when one adopts. Uh, buys into a past through the adoption of a, you know, an iPhone. I don't have to have lived through 200,000 years of knowledge making myself in order to use an iPhone. I am the heritor of the entirety of human culture. And in putting on a football strip, 
uh, playing with the ball, I am buying into a history that, that, that long precedes me. In playing with the ball, I am projecting a future in front of me. Um, so that's ecstatic temporality. Ecstatic temporality, uh, and uh, this certainly comes into it too. I, I think another really interesting Stieglerian idea that comes into it too is that, that life is intermittent. You know, we. We become human only in these moments of disautomation when we break out of habits and, and bifurcate, head off in one direction rather than another. And, and we get this with football. Nothing happens for ages, but then cryptobiotically, like you know, the tardigrade that, that sleeps for thousands of years and then wakes up and eats something, nothing happens and then everything springs into life very quickly and then closes down again. It's usually I think we, we, we get this too. Yeah, the man with the top knot. <laughs> yeah, Heidegger's very inconsistent on this point. I, I, I can't remember if it's in your book, but I discovered the other week that Heidegger was a big Bayern Munich fan and had a secret TV in his office where he yeah. watched all the games. <laughs> Don't we all? He liked, he liked Beckenbauer as well. I, I was going to say, um, you know, one of my favourite phrases associated with good sports is um, um, from an American philosopher called Warren Fraley, and he, and he talks about good sport being sweet tension of uncertainty of outcome. And I think that is is is, is absolutely yeah. um, spot on in relation to football because, you, you know, you're right, the fact that the, the tension, because it's... It's a it's a bounded game by time, so mm-hmm. the tension mounts and mounts, and and and, the, and one of the other beautiful things about football is it's quite low scoring, so there's always a chance that another team, the the, the team can come back, you know, because two two goals could be scored in the last you know couple of minutes. Um, so if most games are you know the maximum of, of three or four goals between them then there's always a chance and, and that, that time element the tension rises and rises because you just don't know who is going to win it could be the team it could be maybe there's more to it than that too because I think quite often there is certainty of outcome one can watch a Real Madrid game and how badly they're playing there's never you know that they'll cheat their never, way you don't know what's going to happen you know, if, if you are a, 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 a fan of a terrible team it becomes less about whether you're going to win or not, you're resigned to the fact that you're not going to win, and more about how your team conducts itself in the in the face of certain. But defeats. isn't that why people love the FA Cup? Because you people you... don't love the FA Cup. <laughs> We're bored out of our minds a bit, and it should should have been scrapped 15 years ago. <laughs> Terrible competition. Um, but to well, know on a muddy, you know, you know, <laughs> Liverpool. What was it? Yeovil on a slopey pitch. <laughs> January. Keep it, keep with it a as a memory for when it was good. <laughs> Don't drag it out any further. Can I ask you about? Oh, sorry, something. Yeah, go on. Something. Well, no. I'm just going to ask you just to move you slightly along before we head over to our own. This is going to be such a good segue. Our own crowd. Yeah. I want to ask about. We've been talking about the ec- ecstatic temporality, and I want to ask about the ecstasy of crowds, which we sort of we've touched on a little yeah. bit. But just the um, philosophy, one of the things that philosophers have done, if you want to think about positive football, is theorise crowds, the way that groups work, or collective action works. Uh-huh. And, um, I, think, I think you say in your book, Simon, and I agree with you, that it's too banal to imagine the crowds as a kind of Dionysiac spirit, a Dionysian right. spirit, right? Yeah. It seems too obvious. But there is that experience, lots of us who watch football at home or in the stadium, where you are... You are ecstatic. You are beside yourself. Yeah. You are outside of yourself. Yeah. Um, so, do we need a new philosophy of the crowd? Does could football furnish that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could have. Yeah. I think it's about. I mean, a lot of uh, football for many 
many people here, uh, many of us, is, is about childhood and about play and about what it was to lose yourself in a group or to be humiliated by a group, <laughs> whatever it was by a group. Terrible things happened in playgrounds. Um, I was looking at a playground last week. I was away somewhere at an Airbnb looking over a, a German playground watching kids. It's an amazing thing to watch a playground. And, you know, you've got, when you're in a, a huddle as, as kids or there's a crowd or someone, maybe someone's being punched or something like that. Horrible thing. There's a, we're coming to the violence thing. Football is a violent game. It's about a symbolization of that violence. It's about the ritualization of violence, but it's violent. It's also about what happens to human beings in a crowd, which is, which is intoxicating and terrifying. And we kind of forget that. Here we are with our little separated individual selves with our thoughts and our phones and all that shit. <laughs> when you're lost in a crowd, I mean, it, that's, there's an ecstasy there which can go in all sorts of different ways. And that, I mean, that can't be regulated. And that's kind of one of the interesting, scary things about, nice, nice scary things about football. This plays out in very interesting and, and frustrating ways that comes back to a point that you were making about the purity of the game and, and, and sportsmanship. And I think we want to be so careful about how far we go in the direction of trying to, to, to sanitise this. It, it, it's quite often forgotten that the, the roots of, of sport, um, we tend to think that they're so great and noble Sport begins when the Greek aristocracy gets driven out of politics and turns to private drinking clubs, bacchanalia, and sport as a way of keeping them out of politics. And so it has always been linked to depoliticisation. And to want to purify everything that goes on on the pitch so that we're no longer allowed to scream and get angry when... Or, or foul somebody deliberately, or take one for the team. I, 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 as such as I think you were kind of hinting at might happen in the pure world of esports. I, I don't like the direction that this is going in, and it's something that really strikes me. Coming back to Simon's point about the, the behaviour of the crowds here, is that politically there's a very interesting comparison between the way that um, we are still. Uh, <laughs> Deeply uncomfortable, you know, the, the, the dominant trend is that when poor people are poor, we're more than happy to blame it on themselves, on, on them, and so it's nothing to do with social causality. And yet, when Gigi Buffon screams at an idiot referee, suddenly he is solely and uniquely responsible for everybody getting angry and sending the referee's wife death threats. And so, you have a, a perverse inconsistency in our, our attribution of causality here, where. Um, the crowd suddenly get absolved of this behaviour and it all falls on the footballer as role model. And I find this a really dubious uh, inconsistency that, that's, that's worth developing. And, and I think that comes back to what you were saying, Simon, about the terror that these crowds still instill is that somehow yeah. you know, the working classes uh, amassed in one place are not in control of themselves. <laughs> assumption they never were and we're always threading on the very thin crust of civilization here. And philosophy is crowd control. In what way? Since the Republic, since Plato's yeah. Republic, it's always been about crowd, crowd control, which is why the you know the, the dominant tradition of philosophy is deeply anti-democratic. The problem is the problem of the crowd, the problem of the people as the crowd, and how do you form them? Plato had very clear ideas about that. Right. Well, but, yeah. Let's turn to our own animal yeah, right. on that note. So I told you the segue was going to be good. Um, are there questions? Because we're going to have a moving mic. So there's one right at the back. Amazing. Let's get that one in first. 
We've got lots of time for questions, so take the time to formulate them. Great. You can ask for your um, for our, our pundits. Um, pundits. Our pundits. Right. Um, well, cup uh, tips as well if you're looking for some betting advice. Okay. Well, my name is Susan. I'm lapsed past on time. Big time to Daniel Kelly said recently that he's the third best player in the world after Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi. So he's a really, really good player. No, I don't. I don't. See, here we, here's an example I'm of rationality. What happened in the final? Here's an example of rationality. I completely agree with you. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a very good player. Aside from that, it's very interesting, and I just wanted to touch on the issue of the kind of social dimension of football in relation to sexuality and why it is in the men's game there's no PR and proud gay. I mean, there seems to be a lot of women who are out in the game. Some of them, I think, in the Arsenal lanes, we married to each other. But why, why not in men's football? And when is it going to happen? Yeah, great question. I, got, I, I, I thought this is this is. I mean, I, mean, I live in uh, I live in New York, and uh, football in that city is a different phenomenon. It's a participant sport. Um, it's a spectacle. People watch a lot of games, know a lot of what, what's going on. There's also this big, you know. Obviously, Latin American connection, but um, in in that regard, I, I, you know, I feel kind of hopeful about the future of football in relationship to questions of gender. If you look at somewhere like the way football, in the, it's it's a well, it's, it's a middle class participant sport, and the U.S. national team has won the World Cup three times. So, to that extent, there's. Um, the, you know, and a lot of the, say, if I go down the road to my local park, most of the games will be um, mixed gender, transgender, the whole thing. And there's a different vision of the game from uh, other places. So I think there's a, I mean, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but I'm kind of quite hopeful that mm. things are, uh, uh, something seems to have shifted, I think, in terms of the, not just, you know, what, what's the right word? Um, uh, you know, into the coverage of football. Um, I'm sort of, you know, I think that maybe another 20, 30 years we might be asking a different set of questions. And if Cristiano comes out, then... I was, <laughs> was going to say the one thing that was going to make me stop disliking Cristiano Ronaldo intensely was when he came out, but sadly it looks like he's married with lots of children and that's no longer on the card. <laughs> um, but it's advised in those situations to preface comment with allegedly. Allegedly there was a time he, he flew on a private jet to hang out with a Moroccan kickboxer in every day, but uh, allegedly now he's happily married <laughs> with several children. Um, but I wonder how much there's a kind of bizarre thinness to this particular phenomenon. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think there's a lot of performance that goes alongside football mm -hmm. and performance of a particularly um, silly, pretentious nature. Um, when, for example, Zidane gets sent off for headbutting Marco Materazzi and a great many people come out and say, well, isn't this outrageous and despicable and they're thinking they don't actually believe that they think it's quite funny they, it, there's a lot of just pretend morality isn't this a really bad thing and then even people who'll come yeah. out and defend it will say oh this is that it was legitimate in this circumstance because he was rude about Zidane's mother and nobody really cares if he was rude about Zidane's mother or not it's rubbish it was just funny and we enjoyed it but people won't come out and say that and I wonder how much of the same silly performance of feigned morality is at, at the heart of 
a lot of the issues around homosexuality in football. Um, which is to say, I is a, a excellent but idiotic Belgian footballer, Rajan Nainggolan, plays for AS Roma, who was in the news this week for saying, talking about how much he cheats on his wife and how much he, he would hate a homosexual footballer. And you think, he doesn't, I don't think he really would for a minute. Yeah. I'm sure if he found out that someone in his dressing room was gay, he'd be fine with it after 30 seconds of feeling vaguely perturbed that he hadn't worked it out for himself. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I, I wonder how much are we building this up to be a big thing that it really would be some phenomenal event and you know, from my understanding there are quite a lot of openly gay footballers who are open to their teammates the thing that they dread is not the reaction of their teammates, it's the tabloid press going on about it and using it as an excuse to do all sorts of privacy invading stories so I suspect that we've made being gay in football far bigger thing than it really is and all it would take is a tiny little puncturing to make it uh, so I'm quite hopeful in the way that you are there Simon yeah and no, I, I absolutely agree with the, the, the last few things you said in, in a sense that it, once it becomes normal it's, it's not going to be an issue um, I think one of the concerns about from footballers is is the reaction of the, the crowd and the mm-hmm. fact that you know if if, if, if one um, one player comes out that actually it's going to be really really difficult for them they'll set a precedent and it will be easier for everybody that comes out after that but the first it takes a really brave person in that culture to be able to step forward and 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 come out as gay um i think in in relation to the the women's game it's a very very different culture and has historically has been very different because sport is associated with all these masculine qualities, therefore women that play sport have traditionally already been labelled as abnormal because they're interested in sports and um, I think therefore it's, it's the, the history of the women's game has been very, very different. The mm-hmm. profile is obviously a lot lower um, and for most, most women's teams it's, you know, it's, it's normal to have players that are gay. Um, it's accepted. Mm-hmm. It's normal, and nobody, you know, it doesn't go against the masculine kind of culture that expectation. Whereas I think with the men's game, it's it's a very different history, very different culture. Do you yeah. have a sense of there being more women in the game, in the crowd, playing football generally? Is that culture change has become more amenable to that? Um, sorry. So, so do you think there are more women generally, just in your experience of? Or women playing, or women. Oh, definitely, absolutely. I think again, the culture of football has changed, though it is more accepted for women to play. Um, It's it's now televised. It's obviously the women's super league is is growing in terms of its uh, spectator numbers and its its profile, Um, and the the women's big competitions, European um, and World Cup. Again, it's 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 growing in profile, so it's much much more accepted. And I think women's sport is on a tra- upward trajectory um, because it's been totally kind of neg- neglected in the past. And even even when I grew up, and I remember when I was and I was at school in the the eighties, and I asked, you know, can we set, can we have a women's football team? And I got told, oh no, because of like health and safety. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to seriously. I'm thinking, you know, why the boys? Yeah. yeah, surely actually hockey is much more dangerous. Which we, so um, yeah, so I think that culturally is is definitely changed in terms yeah. of the women's women's game and the the, the skill level is getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the, the difficulty is that women, the women's game is, you know, at least 50 years behind the, the men. Um, they haven't had um, the professionalisation in terms of the time that they've been able to dedicate in, in, in terms of um, growing up playing the game, but also having that um, additional coaching and training. Um, and actually, I, I think the women's game is surprisingly good, considering the, the, the where it's come from and the the, um, the development and the in, input it has. So, I, I mean, I've, I've, I would say that I've watched more women's games in the last few years than I have men's, generally. We should all do that. There's a great book by Anna Kessel, an observant football writer, called Eat, Sweat, Play, which is about getting women into sports, particularly football. I really that. Let's get another question. There was one right in the middle there. Let's get that one. I'm just enjoying your question so much. I'm letting you each ask your question rather than take a bundle. But I'll try and squeeze you all in. Hi. Uh, question for Simon. Uh, I think uh, to the book that you talk about, Klopp has a criticism of Lever and how this has projected the belief of the team. How do you think he can, he can or has or is using this narrative to rebuild confidence post Kiev, both for the team and his own people? That's a good question. I haven't got the faintest idea. It's a good question. I mean, it, it, I mean, Klopp's interesting because he, he, he's, he's not terribly vocal about his religious faith, but it's there, and when he's asked, he answers. And um, this clearly informs his behaviour with other people, as he sees it, as other people see it. Sympathetic, he likes to help people, all of that stuff. And there's also, there's something higher, there's something more than the game. So, I don't know. I mean, I think Carius is... Um, I think you know, ten years of psychoanalysis with a good Freudian <laughs> analyst and the best drugs money can buy <coughs> this summer, and then hopefully he gets through. But I mean, it, it, it's 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 hard to. I mean, I think it was interesting at the end of the Champions League final when he was you know prostrate on the floor, and then it was the Real Madrid players who first came to him to console him, and. Um, also, this thing about crying as well. We had him crying, we had Carvajal crying, we had Mo Salah crying. The phenomenon of crying, and then there was a Paul Scholes thing I was reading today yeah. about. Scholesy was a little bit you know, dismissive of all, the, all these tears. Um, but um, I think he's, I mean, I think he, Klopp, is good at building teams from elements that aren't really that promising I mean if you look at that Liverpool team it's not a great team in many ways with a 19 year old full back and James Milner rejected by Manchester City and, and so on and so forth there's some stars but there's no depth and um, I think the problem with Klopp is the you know getting, getting the people that own the club to actually pay some money uh, you know some net spend so um, things get better but also, there's, there's, I guess the, the, the problem with the Klopp approach is this, this emphasis on the moment and being together and the team and this explosive football that's with the fans has the capacity to just explode. So the strange thing about Liverpool, watching Liverpool the whole season, every game as I have, it's um, these extraordinarily beautiful sequences of play will happen 10, 20 minutes and then we will collapse uh, in, and we're going to this kind of <coughs> febrile, anxious, just you know, lack of self-belief, and it's um, 
And, you know, if you're building a team, you've got to build something stronger than that. That wouldn't happen with Juventus, you know, for good reasons. And so, Real Madrid. <laughs> well, yeah, but that was, yeah, that, that yeah. But yeah. I think, I think um, where the religion with Klopp does come into it, I think this idea at the moment is about communion. I'd be very surprised if that really comes across in the way that he speaks to players. One of the things that was very interesting about Arsene Wenger is it was said at the end of his time that he had completely lost the ability to talk to the younger generation of players. He just didn't know how to relate to them. And I'd have thought that one of the things that would make somebody like Klopp extremely good at managing is that he does know how to relate to them. And I suspect that probably means in the majority, but maybe not all cases, that he doesn't bring religion into it. He knows the wavelength through which to engage specific players. And the language in which Apart from Bobby Firmino, who's got, you know, had faith in God in ancient Greek on his chest. There are still quite a lot of (coughs) players who are, quite a surprising number of players who are very religious. Mo Salah, right? Uh, Mo Salah, too. Mo Salah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that's a question about we're building a theocracy at Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Uh, let's get another, let's seek another question and try yourself sound a bit more like Liverpool. Um, there's a question here. Uh, yeah, thanks. So, um, this is to do with um, esports. I mean, one of the attractions being that uh, there's no version for the game Christian things. I've really made another attraction is that there's no referee in the States. And mm. um, with that in mind, um, what are your thoughts on VAR? That is an excellent point, and uh, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that there, there are the, the game is the game. There are there is not a referee in the sense of ha- who's fallible and who may make mistakes. Um, in relation to the kind of the technological question, do we want do we want a perfect game whereby there is no human fallibility, there right. is no human error? Right. Or is that something that we ought to value? Now, I would say that probably most fans would say that we don't want human error. We want the referee to always get it right every single time. Um, but then, are we, are we diminishing the game in, in some respect? I, I'm, I'm a, as I said, I'm a purist, so I would say that you want a pure game. I don't know what the partisans <laughs> would say in relation to. This. I mean, as we're in a philosophical concept, I mean, you know, we at one level we want to be Kantians. We want we want regulations. We want imperatives that are going to be applied consistently in relationship to examples. On the other hand, being a football fan is more Wittgensteinian. You know, it's about examples and exceptions. And so, what Ramos did on with uh, Mo Salah was not illegal, right? It could have been sent off for that if it had been interpreted a different way. But the the importance of cheating in football is really, really key, right? It's part of the joy of the game. It's not just fallibility, but the players that can bend the rules, like Giorgio Chiellini or uh, or Luis Suarez. This is so we like there to be rules, and we like to see those rules being bent. How do you your advantage? You, you no, but in the case of Ramos, I mean, you think, yeah, but on the, yeah, it, it was it was physical assault on Mohamed Salah, a greatest player. But on the other hand, it's very good defensive play. You reckon this is a skillful? This is you take the best player out of the game, and that's the way he did it. And uh, another, so another level, I think I applaud that, and he got away with it. Great. Mm. 
So I think the importance of cheating is kind of interesting. The other thing to say here is that um, a Turingian point after Alan Turing, it's not true that referees in esports are infallible. They have a different kind of fallibility, going back to Turing's point, uh, Turing's point that machine mistakes are not the same as human mistakes. There have long been glitches in AI and FIFA that people can exploit. Yeah. Uh, the current version of FIFA does not know that it's not handball if it bounces onto the hand off another part of the body, for example. Um, so there are always little glitches that creep in, and the computer remains fallible in the same way that referees are, albeit structurally slightly different ways. Um, but I think we want to preserve that space of fallibility anyway. And we've seen that this is the case. VAR's been used in Italy for the last year, and it's, it's changed the way that interpretations happen, but it hasn't eliminated the role of interpretation. This has become a persistent feature, is that you now have these five-minute pauses in a game where people stand around and reach the same conclusion they would have done anyway. And it's, it's by no means... And I think this ends up being a, an interesting philosophical point uh, a Stieglerian point Stiegler would say here that the, the cure is always also the poison so it cures one thing but then it becomes toxic in another respect and we've seen this with VAR it solves some problems but it, then it, it just the way that it works forces you to realise that there is an ineliminable element of interpretation uh, in, in any be it the way that the PlayStation is coded to understand the movement of the ball, or the way that the referee is coded to understand the transgression of the rule as seen through a, a slowdown video replay. Yeah, yeah. I'll just make two points in relation to that. So, um, it, on, on YouTube, there's uh, you know there's loads of clips about all these glitches in in FIFA. So, uh, and most of them are quite funny of like really odd things happening, um, which are obviously um, related to the programming. Um, and the other point I was going to make is uh, that. I remember many years ago, uh, before the implementation of goal line technology, and, and Seth Blatter was—he came up with seven reasons why it shouldn't be implemented, and, and, and one of them was that goal line sh technology should not be introduced because it will stop the fans talking about these controversial decisions in the pub afterwards. And, yeah. and that's one of the, <laughs> the joys of, of the game is the discussion about, well, sh should it have been a goal? Should it, should it, was it a foul? Was it not a foul? Um, to power. Yeah, yeah. so, um, <laughs> and, and I suppose there's something in that is that, you know, it, it, it is um, those moments of controversy remain kind of indelibly in, in, in the memory about, you know, we were, we were robbed because the referee got it wrong in that, that, uh, that case. Um, and I think you're absolutely right in relation to there will always be, um, it will always be a matter of interpretation. And, and you, can, you can see that in rugby where they've had video technology for a long time and they've got all these different um, angles of whether a, a ball was uh, touched down or not and they can look at all the different camera angles and still they don't know. Still they, they're not quite sure about whether it really was um, grounded or was it, whether it wasn't grounded. And it's still up to somebody to make that judgment mm. and to, to interpret what they're seeing. Mm. Debates in Italy end up being no longer a case of, well, was it a foul in the box so much was, well, at what point did this particular phase of play originate? Mm. And therefore, did the foul halfway down the pitch really form part of the same phase of play that ended up in the scoring of the goal? Yeah. So it shifts the attention to elsewhere on the pitch, but it, not conclusively by any means. Let's get more questions. Oh, there's lots now. Great. There's one in the middle here. Can we get the mic to the third row there? Um, let's get that one in. There's some in the back as well, though. Yeah. 
I get one one full question and then I get three in a row so I can get all the recent trend in football has been for a number of players to move around far more than they used to. Like with Vega leaving recently, people say that's never going to happen again for a a post that long. Picking up on the socialist aspect of football, do you think that this constant movement uh, will sort of increase that collective spirit because it becomes more about you know, the team and its history? the fans of the continuity, the fans of the archive, the fans of the repository of the meaning and value of the team. Players and coaches come and go, but uh, I mean, the, the point that people, I mean, you know, it's, it's you're going to lose, right? Teams, so, you know, it's about, this is a game that is essentially, essentially, this is a game that's about losing. There are 20 teams in the Premier League, 19 of them are going to lose. So, it's more likely. So, what does that, what does that do, and how does one deal with that? I was in Denmark recently and was um, shown this footage about the Bromby uh, fans. Bromby failed to win the Danish Super League, uh, having you know imploded the last couple of games, and the Bromby fans were clapping their players. It was just a ritual act of, and there's something about the. Uh, for me, I mean, despite everything and everything that uh, um, was said, and I, I, I agree with it about what's been happening in football, the addictive quality of it, there is, there's, there's something about, in football, there's a capacity for um, decency, self-respect, dignity in relationship to, to, to a team and being a fan, despite everything and with everything, with all the kind of crap that's going on. And that is uh, that's not insignificant to me. It's really uh, it's a really important thing. That's a really good half time talk. Two points though. One, I think many of us will have had one night stands or three week flings that leave a more indelible mark on the mind than marriages. Um, and I think <laughs> the same can be true of relationships with players. They don't need to be there for 15 years to, to really work their way into your heart and change the way that you experience the game. Um, the second point, and it feels like a, a, a bizarre point to be making, um, but coming back to something I said earlier about the proletarianisation of the footballer too, and we see this, you know, what does it tell us about the, the, the dominant economic model of the, the precariat and the precariousness of employment, that we see this happening to footballers too, and one of the effects of social media has been that we become far more aware of the players who gently get low, let go at the end of the contract, who may be getting paid vast amounts of money relative to what we're on, but they have very precarious existences, and we wouldn't envy the people who move from Malta to Malaysia to Iceland, you know, constantly in search of that little contract that enables them to keep going with that vocation for just a bit longer. So I think that, that too, we've started to see a much more humanising uh, side of the game come to the fore, where we relate to players in a different way, and the economic difficulties that they go through 
actually means that you can relate to somebody for that too. You know, people were all talking... All the abuse stories that come out. Yeah, um, not just the abuse stories, the, the, the West Ham chap that was let go over email a couple of weeks ago, and people get very indignant about that. I'm sure he's a millionaire multiple times over. But we get feel violated vicariously by these breaches of dignity. And I think that that, that counts. Yeah. Let's squeeze in a few more questions. So one here, and there was uh, another one there. Can we get that one there? And then one more. One more. And the one just... There's a couple at the back there. Is there someone at the back? Uh, and the back there, thank you. So here first, there, and then that. Thank you. We'll take three of <laughs> Okay. I'm going to have one leadership. What fascinates me, leadership. leadership, what I like to get your comments about, for these coaches, they must do their work before and after. They are not allowed to go and involve in the game, in the playground. And in business leaders, in companies, they are fully allowed to go and get involved with the operational issues. Take part in negotiations, have opinions about the detail, how to design something. And uh, this has fascinated me, so that you're forced to do your work before and after. You are not able to go and get Great. Please, can I get some comments? Oh, you put that very well. I think it's, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get three in a row, so I can squeeze a few more. It is a very interesting question. So there's a mic over here. Perfect. So, Sandy, you talked about how democratic football is and how it's their opinion. Socialism. Yeah, not democracy. Expertise. So I'm always struck by how little I know when I read um, tactical analyses or statistical analyses and there is now, it seems, much more sophisticated uh, analysis of football going on than perhaps it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. After greater distance, I think, if you compare what Guardiola does compared to what Keating did 20 years ago, mm-hmm. there's perhaps a greater distance between um, the fans that just behind the Okay, and then yeah. one more question. Oh, are you bundling? Okay. Getting three in a row just so we can Okay. Well, I have any two questions. One is regarding the government on how tiring we're getting of consuming, over-consuming football. Mm-hmm. And the question is about the 2026 World Cup, where we're going to have 48 teams. How do you think that will affect our over-consuming football, considering that FIFA wants to get to new markets and that's the reason why they're incorporating these new countries? And the second thing is about, uh, you mentioned the statistics version of before me. Um, I've read a lot on how we are looking for efficiency into sports through the statistical analysis and the <coughs> over analysis of the performance of players and how technology or use technology to improve that performance. Um, do you think that is affecting also the creativity of players and, and that's just another um, and how that relates with the industrialization of the sport. Okay, great. So, what about leadership? What about socialism and expertise? Um, over consumption of football, and what about how efficiency is affecting creativity? Go Can on. I jump in on the leadership question first? Because 
I don't think it's true. You look at someone like Zinedine Zidane, what has marked him out as a manager is his ability to make decisive substitutions. Now, he only gets to do that three times in a match, but the same can be said of a CEO for any large corporation. You cannot be backseat driving your team the whole time. You cannot stand behind them and shout them orders. If you do that, they'll stop listening after the first ten minutes. So actually the skills that Zidane shows on the sideline of, no, of biding one's time and intervening decisively at punctuated moments, I think this is also something that you'd see um, in any large company as well. But it's true that, of course, you get preparation before and after, but not, not you uniquely so. Yeah, picking up on um, particularly the, the, the question, well, probably all, all the questions, one of my, my, my concern about elite sport more generally is this technologicalization of the athlete and, and trying to quantify absolutely everything. So mm-hmm. there'll be a whole range of backroom staff that are looking at the, the work rate of athletes in terms of their, their GPS, how much they've run compared to their fitness profile and therefore managers will be told well hang on a minute this player is actually they've peaked they're just going to go downhill take them off now and so you'll see that more and more this this notion of well it's just about the kind of quantification of the athlete and the body as machine that needs to be fixed and repaired and and that's one of my concerns about elite sport is that it's becoming it's becoming much more about quantifying performance rather than the ability to show flair, creativity, and actually there may be moments of brilliance that, you know, you look on a, on a, on a particular algorithm that says, no, this player will start to deteriorate now, but they'll manage to kind of pull it around and do something incredible. And we won't see that so much, I think, in the future because it will all be run, unless you've got a, a, a good manager, arguably, which is able to, to kind of say, actually, no, you know, I'm going to dismiss this sports scientist next to me telling me what's, what's going on. I can see that they're actually still playing really well and they've got something extra to give. Um, so that's my, my concern in terms of the way that sport is being commodified. It's almost like the irrational or the non-reasonable the mm. thing that shouldn't, philosophy of the trying to exclude. Yeah. Well, you, you still get... Moneyball done well can still get you Pascal mm-hmm. Gross and N'Golo Kante. There are ways of using it effectively. They don't simply involve a race to the bottom in terms of maximum efficiency. And you know they used to say of uh, Patrick Vieira, oh, "We'll only play till 25 because one leg's shorter than the other." And you know, done on a purely quantifying basis, you end up shooting yourself in the in the feet very quickly. And I think that people will ultimately be intelligent enough to. Uh, make that decision within the game for themselves. But of, of, of course, I think that this over-quantification, and especially with regard to management of overstressed bodies and expectation that players play on regardless, is, uh, is pretty pernicious and uh, undesirable. Sam, did you want to have a go at one of the questions? Uh, very good questions. I, I, don't, I, I can't answer them fully. But one thing I'd say is that the... Um, again... As we're in a philosophical context, um, football suffers from the error of subjectivism, the idea that somehow the contents of our minds explain our actions, right? So a player will be asked after a game, what was going through your mind when you <laughs> scored that goal? And as you, as, you know, as you play the game, nothing is going through your mind. Play is not in the head. Play is on the, the surface of play. You're out there. So the error of subjectivism, 
And then the, the bigger error is the error of objectivism. The idea that football is explained through objective data. And the, um, I mean, I, I mean, the, the rise of tactical analysis is very interesting, I think, in the last 20 years. Um, has the internet been good or bad for human beings? Question mark. I don't know. But for football, I think it's been pretty good. And the rise of kind of uh, football journalism has been remarkable. But the ob objectivism is another delusion. Football's not explained through statistical data. It takes place in the Middle Kingdom. It takes place in the area between selves and objects explained scientifically. That's, the, that's where the phenomenon of play happens. And the good leader, the good, good, good manager is able to make that judgment, to, to, to see that from a certain distance and to make the right judgment. I was in Madrid when um, Zidane resigned and it's a very interesting moment because they really had no idea and uh, a thing that interests me, a text that interest, interested me a lot um, about ten years ago was this text by Jean-Philippe Toussaint called The Melancholy of Zidane and um, Zidane's melancholy and um, there is something about this moment last Thursday when he resigned which is like the moment when he was sent off against after headbutting Matarazzi and there's a kind of melancholic quality to Zidane, to, to, to Zidane which interests me there's, and I think it's, it's not something that most managers have you know, knowing, knowing when to stop knowing when to, to pull away. So what Zidane kind of recognised in that moment is that this can't go on. This is it. I can't repeat this. And it should end. And that's both a recognition of a kind of mortality, right? And, um, and, a, and, a, and a melancholy. And there's something about, you know, there are other, maybe there are other players like this Maybe Cantona, who we have not talked about, the great, the great philosopher of football, Eric Cantona. The question on all your lips about the sardines, but I'm not going to ask it. The last thing I'm going to ask yeah. is about the melancholy of England. What are our chances? Um, is everybody, uh, yeah, so uh, lose to Belgium, right? Uh, beat Panama, draw with Tunisia, second rounds, maybe get through, then lose to. Portugal, Argentina on penalties. Quite a decent batch of young players. I would be quite pleased to see them go out in the first round. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's, let's finish on an optimistic note in this well, I'm, I, I, Northern Ireland would be my team if I had one at international level. Yeah, I, 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 I disagree with you. There's always a chance, and, and that's a beauty of sport in the sense that you, you never can quite kind of say it's the end until it is the end. It is the end. It's <laughs> been a really beautiful panel for the beautiful game. Would you join me in thanking Simon Christie, Joe Moore and...